He keeps himself in trim by bending bars of iron. This bar is the genuine article which we tested before he began to play with it. Beyond the bend. Beyond the bend. All right. Everybody, we have a very special guest tonight. We have Mr. Mark Hewitt in the house. Welcome to Beyond the Bend, Mark. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I always appreciate a chance to talk a little bit about Catch Us, Catch Can and the history of, of the sport. So this is a little bit different of one. Usually we have some steel benders on and different types of grip athletes okay. and everything. But in my mind, it's all related. And in my personal experience as a grappler uh, that through COVID sought out grip strength and found steel bending, it ultimately is connected. So I it was personally, I wanted to have you on because I was fascinated by your episode with Jake Shannon. And I know uh, a good majority of our listeners are jujitsu guys, wrestlers, and grappler, grapplers okay. of all kinds. So people will really like this one. Right, so why don't right. you tell me a little bit about your history and how you became to have such a love for uh, catch wrestling? Yeah, I, I grew up in the 1960s uh, in, in Maryland, not too far from Washington, D.C. Became a fan. I don't even remember how old I was. Very young of the professional wrestling on TV. Uh, I never, ever wrestled or played sports officially, but I was always an enthusiast. I'd get the neighborhood kids together and we try to imitate what we saw the pros do and Always, always loved combat sports. My parents were big boxing fans, so I was exposed. There was some great boxing in that time period, Muhammad Ali and, and everybody. I grew up seeing some really good heavyweight boxing. But I was always fascinated by wrestling, and uh, there just wasn't a lot of history written about it. And I wanted to know, where did this come from? You know, this is different. I can see there's a lot of showbiz here. But I think these some of these guys really know what they're doing and are really lethal, you know, martial artists. So... I began a search, you know, to really try to uncover the history of the sport and where it came from and how it came to be. So I kind of got away from it my teenage years. But uh, after I got married and had kids, my son was a maniac that had been in the early 80s. So I kind of started taking him to the matches and I got interested again, said, I want to figure out what is this? Very little books written about it at the time. So I, I just I, I tried to find as many old timers as I could, interviewed them. I picked their brains, tried to find out what was behind and behind what they were doing, you know, and, and I found that there was catch ass catch can wrestling, ancient lineage, old history. It was legitimate. These guys, when they were some of these guys, when they really had to, could take care of themselves, you know, without any trouble. And so I wanted to, I wanted to learn that, learn more about it. So I started researching that and going back and spent a lot of time in newspaper archive, uh, going through newspaper microwaves, microfilms, and going back and back and just uh, gathering information about guys like Farmer Burns and Frank Gotch, of course, Tom Jenkins, uh, John Pesek, Strangler Lewis, George Bothner, Ad Santel. And then I began to see that there was a, a melding that happened in North America where you had an older, you had the old Lancaster style catch as catch can which actually was brought to Britain from a Germanic background, uh, the Flemish, really? Flanders, and, and, and Swiss, as they 
So it because the the traditional English folk wrestling and a lot of traditional wrestling is stand up, where two guys come to a grip and you try to throw one another to the ground, and that is a fall that ends the the match or that ends that fall. But in catch as catch can, they actually got on the ground and rolled around, and the the British considered it undignified, and they called it like a dog fight. So they looked down on it. So it kind of had a a rough and ready reputation, but it really caught on when it was brought to North America and it kind of blended here, you know, leave it to us Americans to, to take something like that and make it our own. And uh, they, <laughs> just some rough and tumble fighting, borrowed some from Japanese jujitsu and judo when, when some of those experts first started touring the Western world and all kind of blended together into a professional sport, but based on legitimate you know, holds and, 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 and grappling and ability to defend yourself and, 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 you know, and take out anyone. So anyways, that's kind of it in a nutshell. So I spent years and years, you know, just trying to put this story together. I've written a couple books about it. Uh, you know, it's just, I've, I've still am fascinated by it today and it's probably been close to 45, 50 years of doing this research because, because you find new stuff out all the time. I love it. But, you and, know, and, in, in hand, Go ahead. I love it. And Go it's ahead. just like, um, it's such a rich history and I've only, you know, really just started to tap into it. And I, and I love the idea that maybe the lay layman, the, the grappler that maybe just thought submission fighting really kicked off post UFC one. We're talking about a, a rich history mm-hmm. here in the United States of submission fighting. You know, we're talking Kimuras and... That's- all, all of these moves that most people just associate with Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And that was my experience up until listening to you and finding out about Farmer Burns and these guys. And it's just so fascinating to me that like, especially in the era that a lot of the listener, you know, the steel benders and the old time strongmen, we're talking turn of the century. We've got the catch people, the performing strongmen. That just sounds like such a unique time. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Okay. So if you could. I lost for a minute. We still there? Yep, we're good. Um, Okay. What I'd like like to know is um, where did it become, where did the work kind of start to take priority over the actual uh, realistic fight? What years are we talking where the work kind of took over? Yeah. I tell you, that's a you'll get different opinions on that. And I have two or three or more friends that I've been researching with and corresponding with for years. And we all, none of us fully agree. My, my personal opinion is that professional wrestling has always been a big part show business. It's, it was the nature of the game. You know, one time it was part of circuses, part of carnivals. Um, you mentioned the old time strongmen. I mean, they were hand in hand. Uh, the wrestler and, and the, the strongman act. So I think there was, and then there used to be betting was a big part of it. And, you know, it wasn't just, it was, you know, side bets, wagers. So I think there was all, and you'd find this in boxing or even in old baseball, any kind of sport activity where betting is really a big part of it. There's going to be, it's questionable whether it's always legitimate, whether there was some kind of prearrangement, but professional wrestling per se, has always largely been 
a good percent showbiz. But the difference between back then and today is those guys could really go. I mean, when they had to, when money was really on the line, they knew how to really wrestle. They knew how to take a man out quick. They knew how to make them give up. That kind of got lost over the years, that ability, that old-time catch-as-catch can. And there were legitimate, you know, contests, 100% bona fide, I would say, into the early 1930s. Okay. You know, especially among the lighter weight, the middleweights and the lightweights and the welterweights. They had a high uh, caliber of, of the ability to shoot, and they wanted to shoot. So that's, that's my take on it. You talk to another uh, researcher, a historian, he might say it's always been completely fixed. Another one, you know, some people like to say, well, it was real up until the 50s or 60s, you know. But, but anyways, that, I try to be honest about it, just evaluate it. And when you see somebody like Frank Gotch wrestling the same guy over and over and over again, city after city, you know, it's a show. And I, yeah. I have the highest part for Frank Gotch. I'm not knocking but you, you can kind of see between the lines. Okay, well, if they're all traveling together and putting on shows, they're putting on a show. That doesn't mean that, you know, part of the show would usually be they throw a challenge out to the crowd and anybody could come and take them on and be given a cash prize if he could last a certain amount of time without being thrown. And then different towns would have their own local pride or champion so they could draw a big crowd. I mean, that's, that was the bottom line. They were trying to make a living. So yeah. they wanted to draw a crowd. So if they could wrestle to a draw or wrestle to some kind of crazy finish that was controversial, then they could have a rematch for all another big crowd. So it's it's always been connected like that. So that, you know, I, I think that there's always been a strong element of working, but they could shoot. And that got lost over the decades. That got lost by the 50s and 60s and certainly today. You know, that the idea now until the revival grappling submission style wrestling revived following uh, the, the UFCs and the Gracies back to it. But that, that old knowledge was kind of lost. And that's, you know, I, I was I was really pleased to be able to seek out and, and interview and get to know some of those old timers who actually had some background in that shooting and knew knew what was going I've considered that a great experience to have met some of these guys like Hess and Dick Cardinal, Billy Wicks, Red Bastine uh, all come to mind, you know, and just, they shared with me growing up and all those guys traveled with the carnival athletic shows where they would, you know, they would take on all comers as part of the carnival show. Anybody could step up and challenge say, I want to wrestle this guy. So they, they had to know something and that's what they learned. They learned how to, end a match quick, you know, with, with an arm lock or a foot lock or something. And they learned that, you know, and uh, they, Billy or Red Bastine, all those guys are, are deceased now, but the Red Bastine told me once that he never worried about getting in a bar fight, going into bars. Cause he said, uh, he knew that he could, there wouldn't be any effort. He could have this guy on the floor screaming or break his arm like that. So he, he said, he'd just walk away. It meant nothing to him now. So anyways, that, that kind of, put something in me I thought there's something to that you know I really want to get I want to help preserve this this knowledge so definitely <laughs> I, I studied right. go ahead 
I studied a little bit of Billy Wicks. Uh, I, once I heard your interview on scientific wrestling, I started uh -huh. searching searching YouTube for um, just carny style wrestling. I just wanted to see what would come up. Right. And sure enough, a Billy Wicks right. video came up. Uh, he was explaining the front headlock and how to make it extra painful with the cutting bone and on your <laughs> wrist there. And right, right. That's a specialty of mine, uh, the guillotine or the front headlock. So I took some little tidbits okay. of, uh, from that. And Billy Wicks is still living, correct? No, all those guys have passed away that I named. Uh, Billy Wicks, the last one, Dick Cardinal, just passed away uh, like around the day before Christmas right around oh. christmas billy wicks is dead for a few years now he has some uh several of his students are stu are pretty prolific john strickland uh johnny buck um you know they still are carrying on and and i think they're teaching and coaching and they, they have videos and i think you can i uh, think uh john strickland calls his american hook wrestling uh, you can find that and I can I can send you links, you know, if any anything you're interested in. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, that generation is is pretty much all all passed on. Dick Carter okay. might have been the last one actually took on all comers as a as a you know traveling catch as catch can wrestler on the carnival carnival shows that I that I'm aware of. Frankie Kane is still alive, and oh, wow. <laughs> I'm just. He's, there's one, Frankie Kane. There's a real good uh, first volume of a biography that Scott Teal put together that's available on the Crowbar Press right now. That's, wow. It's a good story. And he about learning from some of these old timers and growing up and how it came about. I might have the name wrong. I'll, I'll figure, it, figure it out who it is and send it to you. I'll send you the video I watched on YouTube. Cool. Well, his, his uh, videos, are, you know, so it might have been, it might have been him. Billy Wicks. He's, he was in North Carolina is where he finished out his days in western part of North Carolina in the mountains there. I think Wayne's Hendersonville, North Carolina. Okay. Okay. And something you said on uh, Jake's podcast, you mentioned that sometimes the two grapplers would fight to uh, figure out who was going to be the winner in the show. I thought that was a really interesting aspect to kind of the turning of the legit match right. into the work. Right. Yeah, to determine who was the toughest guy, they would test one another and they'd agree. You know, um, one of the uh, Ed Strangler Lewis and his manager, Billy Sandow, were a really powerful force in the history of professional wrestling in the 20s and uh, 30s, even earlier. Strangler Lewis was, was a very capable, very strong grappler. Billy Sandow was, was, a, was a wizard. But uh, he was more, more running the show, promoting it. So they keep a stable of guys. And they used to keep what they'd call a policeman. And that was a guy who, if they didn't, if somebody was challenging Ed Stranger Lewis as a champion, and they, did, he, they didn't know what he was about, they'd say, well, you have to get through this guy first. So they used uh, John Pesk, the guy they called the Nebraska Tiger Man, who, in my opinion, was probably the greatest the toughest catch us catch catch us catch can wrestler that ever lived, but they used him. They kept him on salary on contract as a policeman, so you had to get through him to get to the champion. And they also had another very tough uh, guy in their camp, uh, Joe Toots Mont. And they were they were both 
almost equal, but they got arguing among themselves as which one was tougher. So they decided to settle it out. They met in a gym. It wasn't for money. They might have made a side bet. I don't know. But they <laughs> got into it in the gym. I believe they probably did a little more rough and tumble than just playing wrestling. But uh, Pesek walked away in the winter. And Billy Sandell got really pissed off about it because here two of his guys that were fighting among themselves. So he got into it with Pesek and Pesek walked away and he began, became a troublemaker for the, for the promoters, you know, because he, after that, but anyway, so there was a lot of that kind of thing. That's what you mentioned where they tested one another and, you know, there was a lot, they were pro proud of what they knew. So, you know, they were, they were, they're so, okay, show me, <laughs> make yeah. me give up, make me beat me. <laughs> yeah. I, I really love that uh, aspect. And that wasn't something I knew until I heard your other interview. The other thing I really, really loved from Jake's interview was when you were talking about the, the canal workers and the river riverboat uh, men that would, uh, yeah. and they'd had the red feather and the toughest right. guy wore the red feather. That, that, I just love that. And I have a, a friend that works on um, boats going up and down the Hudson River from the city up to Albany and Canada oh. sometimes. And he, he got a lot of, a big kick out of, um, just the river, the rivermen uh, being extra tough and right. all that. I, I, I like that. Right. Could you explain yeah, that, that a little bit? That's a cool story and a cool part. Yeah. Well, you know, in early American history, the rivers, the waterways were the main arteries for commerce, for travel. You know, a lot of the countryside was wilderness and there were dangers in the wilderness, but you could, you could get up, you know, so, and they move, you know, the, the products produce up and down the rivers and uh so the guys that worked on these river boats gained a reputation as being you know the toughest guys in, around and every boat every keel boat or, or barge boat had its own champion the, the toughest guy and he would wear a red feather in his hat and the, it was like a standing challenge to anybody that saw that red feather if they wanted They'd say, okay, let's see how tough you are. And <clears throat> these weren't, they weren't professionals. You know, they'd work all day, backbreaking, excruciating work. You know, they'd pull these boats from the land with cables up one way and they'd be able to float down the other way. So they were working like mules. Um, and then for entertainment, <laughs> they'd beat the daylights out of one another. But uh, <laughs> every town along the river, had their own tough guy too. It was a thing in, a, in popular culture, you know, the toughest guy in the town. They called it a bully. The word bully comes from the French word uh, uh, bourgeois or like the, he'd be like the foreman of the, of the crew. So that somehow yep. that got named bully. So every town had a bully, every boat had a bully. So if you were a particularly tough and, and sure yourself town bully, you'd walk down to the bank and as the boats roll by, you yell out, cuss them, you know, challenge them, throw your hat in the air, try to get them to land so a match could be arranged between you and the boat bully. So this would have been 1800s, you know, into the into the first few uh, decades of the 1800s um, when that when that was the thing. Mike Fink, you know, the folklore hero was actually a real guy. Uh, Mike Fink was one of the toughest of the boatmen, the old time boatmen. Maybe came a folk here there's a lot of you know folk tales about him but uh, cool stories great history uh you know a lot of it 
it kind of gets passed over because it's unofficial. So you see glimpses of it just reading through old history books and things. So I, I tried to put some of that together to make it a cohesive story. And you see a tradition developing there, you know, that that professional wrestling was kind of stemmed from some of this stuff that, right. that there were these travel guys who were willing to wrestle all out fight, you know, rough and tumble. Uh, they, maybe they just wanted to use their fists and try and put some regulations on it. And, uh, you know, however they wanted to fight, they would fight. And the big impetus was not only on earning your reputation, but money would be wagered on it. And, you know, you'd put bet your money, you'd have backers that would put their money down. Townspeople would come and support you. And so all that, it, that kind of lends itself to the fixing a little bit, because when there's a lot of money involved, it's not too far till somebody's going to say, okay, we can make even more if, if you beat me and I beat you next week or next trip up sure. or down, we switch. So, so that's, and again, none of that takes away from, from the legitimacy and the toughness of these guys. You know, I have the, right. the highest respect. I wish we had a time machine. We could go back and watch some of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Now- now, the same thing was kind of happening in England, correct? I, I think I saw in the, the whole Not Taken documentary that uh, these were like mine workers, right? And it was like after their shift at the mine, they'd, they'd sometime wrestle. So right. it was hard manual labor and the outlet was the grappling, correct? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that was the Lancaster district of England uh, is where catch as catch can wrestling really took birth it kind of was brought to that area uh from lancashire was a textile it was all it was coal mines but it was also a textile center so in flanders the flemish weavers started migrating to that part of england to work in the textile industry and they brought with them their love for what they called up and down fighting which was Stand-up fighting, go to the ground, grapple, headbutt, kick, you know, whatever. Any, anything goes. What we'd call no-holds-barred today. They called it up-and-down fighting. So, And that really took on in that part of England, whereas the rest of England, they were doing, the, like I said, the stand-up wrestling, sort of like collar and elbow where you lock up in a grip and you, maneuver, you know, try to outpower the other guy and trip him or make him go to the ground, whereas – what was developing in Lancaster was you wouldn't take an initial hold. You that's catch as catch can. You'd grab his arm, you'd grab his body, you'd grab his head, whatever you could catch hold of. If you ended up on the ground, you could stay on the ground. You try to either not just throw the guy to the ground, but you had to pin him. You had to hold force him, hold him down, or some kind of lock or hold that made him give up and cry enough. So that's what developed there. And that's, you know, that was what those where the guys came from, they brought it to America. Uh, Lancaster wrestlers like Tom Connors and Joe Acton and Edwin Bibby in the late 19th century. And Farmer Burns, although he never acknowledged it, learned from Tom Connors. He traveled around with Tom Connors and learned that old Lancaster wrestling. And of course, he added his own, you know, American nuance to it, and rough and tumble and I think they borrowed a little bit from the Japanese and kind of blended it all together. That's kind of the development of, of professional wrestling and what Farmer Burns taught and what he taught Frank Gotch. Frank Gotch becoming, you know, the great uh, first, really the first world champion, 
you know, American world champion, catch as catch can wrestle, you know. Yeah. So yeah, great roots in England. Great, you know, roots definitely in England. Uh, uh, roots in, in Germ Germanic culture as well. The Germans had what they called the uh, Turner Society, Germanic, uh, Germanic gymnastic societies. And a lot of German in immigrants ended up in North America and also in England as well. And they also had, they had this tradition of this loose wrestling or freestyle wrestling. So they brought that. And a lot of the early, the best wrestlers in early North America were German or of German background. So there's a strong, really? that kind of sometimes overlooked. Yeah. Um, uh, Frank Gotch was German. Um, George Botham, Rad Santel, Charles Olson, despite his Swedish sounded name was German. Um, they were some very, very tough wrestlers. And they kind of based, a lot of them were based in New York, uh, around New York City. Some of them made it out to Chicago, but uh, some very, very tough. So there, there was a, there's a blending, and not just going back to Wigan and Lancaster. There was a, a strong Germanic influence, and it all kind of came together. I'm not taking anything away from from any of them, from Wigan or the Snake Pit or Lancaster. I'm you know, giving them full acknowledgement, but there was also a very strong influence from the Germanic culture. They they love their ground wrestling and their loose wrestling, and they. Uh, a lot of it was was military training, so they were more brutal. It was you know became really a martial art, you know how to yeah. break an arm or, or you know choke a man out or whatever the case may be. Any Russian influence in there? Because I know obviously in more modern times the sambo is a very right. very good system. Right, I think maybe, and I don't know this because I've never really studied it out. I think that was a little reverse is that when Samba was developed, they sought out all these other styles and amalgamated okay. it. Now the Russians were great Greco. They had some great professional Greco Roman wrestlers, Yeah, which is, a, it can't, you know, it wasn't, isn't quite the same as catch as catch can. You can't take holds below the legs, um, below the waist. I mean, uh, yeah. so it's a little different related, similar, certainly uh, connections back and forth, but I don't know if there's a strong Russian catch as catch can or, or ground wrestling tradition. Now Turkey had one. There's you know Turk Turkish wrestlers fit right in. You know found a uh -huh. home in early professional wrestling because they had their own traditions along right. those lines. And how about uh, where does Brazil play a role in this at all? Do you think anything traveled down from North America to the Brazilians? Because they're in jujitsu, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar, is the feud between the Gracies and the Luta Livre guys, uh, the, which right. were basically catch wrestlers that didn't fight in the gi and did a lot of leg locks. And there was almost gang wars in the early 90s between these two uh, styles. And uh, was there any North American influence going down to Brazil, do you believe? I think there there had to be on um, Maeda himself before he ever made it to Brazil traveled around North America and Europe and competed as a catch as catch can wrestler so now you know he was a, a Kodakon judoka so he had he had that you know legitimate official background right from Japan he traveled all over the United States he traveled all over Europe and competed in catch as catch can tournaments so he he knew catch as catch can 
he, ended, he went through Mexico and Cuba. He was real popular in Cuba, but he ended up in Brazil, taught his, you know, competed there again as a rep, but really more uh, teaching and left that legacy that was picked up by, you know, of course, the Gracies and, and all the exponents of, uh, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So there, there was an influence, and I don't know. There was another guy, one of uh, Carlos's Gracies opponents, um, Manuel, uh, I can't think of his Gomez? name. Gomez? No, no, not, uh, not him. Uh, not Ivan Gomez. Uh, this was way back. Okay. One of Carlos Gracie, the oldest Gracie brothers, early opponents. So we're talking 1930, 1929, okay. 1930, was a, had come to America and learned catch us, catch can wrestling. Rafina. Wow. Uh, um, so, yeah, there, there, there was, and it took off. The Brazilians loved it. And there was a, a and there was a, a real back and forth, like one card in, in Rio de Janeiro or say Paulo, say in the 1930s, might have some professional wrestling. Uh, you might have a, a no holds barred Luta Livre. You might have a Jiu Jitsu rules match and you might have a couple of boxing matches all as part of one show. So there's wow. a real blending. And, you know, and we find that, that nobody has it all, you know, it belongs to everybody. No one culture has it all down. This is ours, right. um, whether the Camorra, wrist lock, you know, you call it this, you call it that. It's the same thing. And it's, it goes way back. You look at those hieroglyphics in ancient Egypt. I mean, you know, they're, they're doing wrestling holds, submission holds and, and whatnot. So and it, I, I wish I knew more about Brazil. There, lately, there has been a little more serious research. Uh, not being able to read Portuguese, I've gone through some Brazilian newspapers, but it really doesn't mean too much to me, you know, trying yeah. to, to figure out. But I see that there was definitely some North American catch as catch can experience that made its way into Brazil and to Argentina as well and established a base. And uh, uh, the one Gracie brother, you know, we all, we all know Helio, the older brother, Carlos, but one of the younger brothers, George Gracie, was yep. probably the, the toughest of them all. And he, he fought anybody any kind of way. He didn't care what kind of rules. He, he, he Valley Tudo, Jiu-Jitsu, Luta Livre. He'd, yep. he'd appear when the pro wrestlers were poor. He'd appear on their cards. And the, the other brothers kind of – he fell out of favor with the rest of the family. From what I can understand, he might have been the, the tough, the, the most prolific of the, of the Gracie brothers when it came to, to fighting and, and putting it on the line. Yep, it, that sounds a lot like uh, the late uh, Rolls Gracie or Holes, Holes Gracie. Right. That was uh, the next generation Hickson's right. brother who's passed. There's, um, uh, you know, stories of him training with college wrestlers and he would he would fight Sambo, he'd fight anything very similar to the stories of George. Right. Right. You know, you said something funny there about uh, moves being around for generations and generations. I, I, I recently heard that there's um, evidence of almost every grappling move tracing back hundreds and hundreds of years, except for the triangle choke with the legs. And then John Danaher said he didn't see anything from that until post 1900s maybe even later 1940s or something like that yeah. he had never seen anyone 
strangle a man or a person with their legs with the one arm in you know what i'm talking about like triangle choke mm -hmm. guard right right, right. That yeah. he, to and, his and knowledge very well. yeah to his Go knowledge ahead. there is no historical evidence prior to that like everybody's seen the greek statues of like a heel hook with the guy with cauliflower right. ears uh, but supposedly there's no no triangle choke with the legs uh prior to 1900 or so not, I'm not aware of any. I'm going to look into that. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I know the old, uh, the old uh, sculptor of the of the heel hook with the centaur putting a heel hook on a guy. Have you yeah. seen that? The old oh, yeah. sculptor going back to I guess ancient Greek. And there's uh, from uh, in in Burma. There's some temple site where there's a, a perfect um, rear naked choke. Oh, cool. A, a guy putting a rear choke on another guy, a sculptor. Um, so yeah, but that you know, there's I guess new things do come up from time to time. But, yeah, I, I mean, and that was a big, big part of catch as catch can was using the legs. Yeah, uh, some of the best components of it, they would say, was like wrestling a guy with two sets of arms. He could use right. his leg, like like I use my arms, or the one Clarence Eklund, they called him the centipede, and uh, somebody said it was like wrestling a guy with ten ten arms. Because <laughs> they could just use their legs. They could put a Phil Nelson on you with their legs. Yeah. Crazy like that. Um, so, yeah, leg wrestling is a big part of, of the traditional catch as catch can. Definitely. You know, one parallel that I find pretty interesting with the, uh, the catch stuff compared to the old time strongman stuff is the the uh, evidence of the work. Right. So we we in the steel bending community, obviously, everybody's way into the mighty Adam and their mind was blown right. when they read what right. read about Joseph Greenstein. And, you know, uh -huh. he's obviously an incredible, incredible person, but he was padding his age. You know, he was adding 10 years to his right. uh, age anytime he did stuff. And there's, there's other things here and there. And it's like, like you said, anytime there's money to be made or had or bet or anything that's when like a little bit of tricky trickiness comes in so i, I like that parallel between the grappling and the old-time performing strongman right right yeah mighty adam yeah incredible guy that that uh, book about him that that was like that blew my mind i read that years and years ago i, I don't know if it's still available or not but what an incredible human being this little little short guy just <laughs> who could hold off airplanes from taking off with his yep. hair i mean what power you know what power he was able to jump and uh, one thing that i this might mean something to you um john pesic I, I never did meet he was already passed away by the time i but i did get to know several of his children particularly one of his daughters mary lee uh a grandson jeff um but one of the, they said he always said his greatest power came from his abdomen. And I immediately thought of like the Asian concept of chi, you know, yeah. being based. And so somehow he, without knowing anything about any of that, he, his center of power was, was, he felt was in his abdomen where he generated his strength and power. Now he had some really unusual uh, training, training regimens that he, he, he did himself and uh, maybe you and, uh, your listeners might be interested here in this. Now he would, he grew up on a farm, you know, so sun up to sundown, hard work. And then they'd wrestle for fun when the, when the farming was done. But uh, he always kept an old car around his ranch and he would go out in the field and he'd push and pull the old car around, just 
you know, just that was, and then he'd, he'd have a tall little section of tall fence and he'd have a big pile of heavy rocks on one side. He called it his daily dozen. And he'd go out there and hoist up one of the stones, manhandle it over the top of the fence, get them all over there. The next day he'd go back and throw them on the other side. And that got, I guess, no you know, that got him used to gripping and holding, you know, heavy and, and lifting it up, and maneuvering it. So he did, he did crazy things like that. He did the traditional workouts with weights and, and pulleys and things, but he had developed a lot of his own uh, training techniques. And I, th I think you find that, you know, that what worked for him, he would, he would hang himself by his neck. Let's see. I don't know. If, yep. I got that, it. Can you see that? Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. him. He grip a, holding the weight in his cling to his chest and he just holding himself up with a cable around his neck. Cause having a powerful neck was really important you know to, oh yeah to their to their trade to, to what they did so the, and then farmer burns you know his boast was that he couldn't be strangled if he flexed his neck muscles because that's a, how, how strong he developed and they they do it through bridging practicing bridging and crazy things like pessics do and they're hanging themselves <laughs> yeah so, but they, you know they just did whatever worked and there's something to be said for that, that hard work being outside. They really believed in training outdoors, breathing in the air. Uh, some of the guys really pushed clean living. Not all of them did. Farmer Burns was, was, you know, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't cuss. He really believed in leading a full, clean, healthy life. Now, that wasn't all around. Many of them did indulge and enjoyed yep. it, but they really took their and, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and worked out and trained. Um, and you, you see it in, in, in a lot of these old photographs. I mean, these guys were, these guys were, were in shape. Now here's, here's a picture of Pesic probably from yep. 1920. You know, they took yeah. it seriously. Um, Farmer Burns, you know, they, they stayed healthy a long time. Now, George Boffner, another of the great old wrestlers, smoked cigars regularly, enjoyed drinking. It didn't bother him. <laughs> So they're different, whatever works for different ones, but sure. some of that, you know, there was what they were, you, you're familiar with the term physical culture. They believed in physical culture, you know, that the body was like a, a temple or a, like a gift from God. And it was up to you to take care of yourself and, you know, and not, not abuse yourself. So <laughs> different strokes for different folks, but it, it's interesting to see their mindset and how they, how they went about it, you know. And, oh, definitely. So, so, so you, you're, you're into like, uh, bending, like bending spikes and things Is it, would that fall into what you're talking about? Yep. Yep. So, uh, you know, there's all different lengths of stuff and all different diameters. A lot of these guys, uh, um, you know, are really into like a, a seven inch by five sixteenths piece and you get it under your chin and you bend it over like that try to touch your fists together that's double overhands unbraced style bending um but then there's other guys that are bending crescent wrenches in half and um, um you know long bar something like 48 inches down to like 36 and then you know uh, doing the horseshoes too so um for me it was like um it felt very similar to the type of strength um I need for grappling and I, and I wanted to develop for grappling, like the real tendon strength, you know, building your tendons and your ligaments different from the belly of the muscle, you know? Um, 
So I, I felt like my hands getting much stronger from manipulating this metal and I just got really into it. And, uh, there wasn't a podcast about it and that's how I ingest my, my information about my hobbies. So I started the podcast about it. So I lost you for a minute. Oh, that's okay. I was saying that uh, there wasn't a steel bending podcast, so I, I started the steel bending podcast. <laughs> okay. Okay. I have a really good friend of mine. Uh, he's out in California now. His name's uh, Richard Army McGuire. We call him Army McGuire. But he's been into that for a long time. He's an old circus guy. He was an elephant trainer. But really? uh, now he manufactures and Indian clubs and sells Indian clubs. Okay. Yeah. It does per- all training for people but he's the first guy that he really got into grip strength hand strength and bending and breaking breaking coconuts breaking center blocks but uh, yeah uh he I, i'll put you in touch with him because he's been doing it for oh, a long be time great. he he whoever the mighty adams uh protege was uh slim Farnham? slim farman yeah slim, slim farman yeah, yeah he, he met, went up and met him you know, talked with him, but he, he used to like to do all that stuff. We'd, we'd be out he'd have some spikes in his pocket. He, he'd wrap them up in a, in a, in a <laughs> uh, bandana or cloth. He'd bend them and he, he talked about it and talked about, it. he'd almost feel them get hot or something. I yep. it's been a while oh, since yeah. he's explained it to good feel right when they were ready to go. And he, 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 I don't remember him doing them up. He usually take them low. It's been yep. a long time, but He's a real good friend, but he he would be very knowledgeable and he loves to talk about it. Oh wow, just, that sounds great. He made a study of, of strong, so and he decided that he wanted to he wanted to under, understand. And he's really into uh, Oriental medicine too, because he put he rubs something into his hands to make them real tough. I, I don't know. <laughs> so, wow, wow. But Army McGuire, I'll, I'll put you in touch with him because I'd like he'd be right down your alley. That'd be great. Yeah. So I had Sean Doherty on the show not long ago. He's part of uh, Snake Pit with along with Joel Bain. And uh, are you familiar with Sean? Okay. I I know Joel Bain pretty well. Um, Yep. Actually, him him and my son graduated from Frederick High School in Frederick, Maryland, the same the same year. Okay. I did. I went to one of his catch wrestling events up in New Jersey. And, uh, I went to the recent one he just had near Baltimore. So yeah, Joel is a great guy. I, I, I have a lot of respect for what he's doing and uh, the work he does. So, but, uh, Sean Darty, is that one of the guys associated with him? The name yeah. sounds familiar. Yeah. I don't know. So Sean fought in UFC too, but that was before he knew any grappling actually. And he, he later then went, went out West and was part of uh, lion's den with Ken Shamrock. But then uh, most importantly, after that, he found himself in Colorado training with John Saylor. Are you familiar with John at all? Okay. Yeah. Oh, the name. Yeah. I don't know him personally, but I know who he is. So he was, uh, the, I think the coach for the Olympic team for judo. And it, there's a story of him wrestling Corey and Gracie to a, a draw a number of times with a paralyzed right shoulder. And, um, he, uh, he, he started this thing called Shingi Tai Jitsu, And, uh, it's sort of like a, an amalgamation of ju- judo jujitsu and catch as we all know, but 
the reason I'm very fascinated with John and I hope I get to speak to him is he, since the mid seventies to eighties was really going hard with the grip training stuff in, um, in combination with the grappling. That was a very big, uh, portion of his training was developing the grip and he had a, a man uh -huh. I met um, on yeah. Facebook just a little bit named Peter Ragner that was a student of his that they were bending metal and scrolling these crazy designs with the metal it, all in uh, just like my quest uh, in an effort to improve grip strength for grappling so I, I've been having a lot of fun researching that you, you, you'd enjoy uh, reading some of John's stuff as well. Sure. Okay, I'll look that up. I'll look. I'll look up some. Yeah, I know. I know the name. And like I said, I just I don't know him personally, but I've I have heard the name. So, yeah, there, there's a lot out there, and a lot of things are being rediscovered and, and new interest. Some of it's kind of niche. You know, you have to find other people interested in the same stuff. But it is popular, and and there's a good avenue, and it's great to see, you know, somebody like yourself, you know, helping to preserve it. And learn it and pass it on and, and and you know spread the word about it so they do go hand in hand um you know what what good is wrestling if you, if you don't have a, a good strong grip um, you know if you can't and that was a thing if they if they locked on to you with a powerful grip you know you know you knew somebody had hold of you and yep. you couldn't get away so easily so you can see, you can see the connection there and how they they go hand in hand um it's a great history uh, Cody, you know, and I, I, I'm still fascinated by with it after all these years and still continuing to try and learn and write, write up some of these old stories so that they don't get forgotten, you know, yeah. and passing it on. And just, uh, that's, you know, that's with Joel Bain, with his, with his events, it really, it's really invigorating to me to see, wow, this, this is years ago. I used to dream about, oh, I wish I could really see some authentic catch as catch catch wrestling taking place for, for legitimately. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's good to see it. And of course, you know, the UFC changed the world the Gracie's uh, Hoist Gracie, you know, changed the martial arts world forever with what yeah. happened with the new UFCs. And uh, you can see what's happening and, you know, such an interest now we see it all over. So it's, it's really a, it's a good time to, to be, you know, because we can look back and see the history of it, but you can see it ongoing and what's happening today and how it's being continued and carried on. So, oh, definitely. No, I think I think there will be. Uh, I think we're still on the uptick, uh, the incline for interest in catch wrestling. So, as um, jujitsu uh, diverges, kind of between the the players that still want to compete in the gi and the kimono right and the the guys that don't want to compete in that like i prim primarily don't compete in the gi and I, I enjoy my training more without the gi so even some of the best jujitsu uh coaches now are preaching the importance of pinning you know not not pinning in the sense of uh winning the match by pin but you know how do you control your opponent uh with no gi uh so you can therefore transition to your submission. So I feel like if catch wrestling was a stock, it would definitely be time to buy in. I, I, I foresee many go. of the, <laughs> many of the jujitsu like guys that. like myself uh, will be continuing to uh, research catch wrestling uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great history. It's, there's a lot to it. Um, 
and again, it's not, you know, one style or one thing doesn't hold all the answers. That's why you got to keep open. And that's, you know, I, I really love catch us, catch can, but I also enjoy reading about jujitsu history, judo history. You know, I, I really love digging into the old rough and tumble fighting, uh, which wasn't really a, a sport so much, but uh, yeah. basically we call that street fighting. It'd be the same as what we'd call today street fighting, but yeah. there's a history to that as well. You know, it goes way back. Yeah. Um, they used to call them eye gougers. The old, right. <laughs> that's right. the main tactic. You try and gouge out the other guy's eye, <laughs> but you know, even among those old time rough and tumble fighters, they had, they had two rules, never gouge out the eye of a one-eyed man. Never mind. If he only had one eye left, don't go after it's one good eye. And at any time during the fight, if he cracked up, you'd stop. <laughs> you know, oh, okay. if he didn't give Some up, honor. you could keep but he said, all right, I've had it. Then you backed off. So those were yeah. the two rules of the old time rough and tumble fighter. Never gouge out the one good eye of one eyed man and, and give and let him go when he's had enough. <laughs> I like that. So rules to live by, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we, before we get out of here, Mark, I know you've written a couple books. I just want to make sure that people know what those are called and if we, if they're able uh, yeah. to be bought still. Or, Well, unfortunately, here's the first one, Catch okay, Wrestling. Catch Wrestling, yep. And the second one, Catch Wrestling, round two. Perfect. <laughs> and these, they were published by Paladin Press. Paladin Press went out of business, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago. They couldn't compete with the ebooks, and they were such a niche market, uh, but they just shut down. So they're no longer available. I have a few copies left, not many in, of my own. I'm looking into getting them republished myself. I own the rights to them. And I'm oh, also good. working on a third book, which uh, is tentatively titled Before MMA, or you know, some of the, this background to what led to modern MMA, wrestlers yep. versus boxers, things nice. like that. Yes, so so that might be in the works. So there, you can find them and use book markets, eBay, Amazon.com. I guess used books. Um, I think sometimes they charge a lot for them, I, a lot more than I would ever pay for them. But yeah, <laughs> some of the Amazon.com is kind of crazy, you know, some of the yeah. prices they put down. But I wish if somebody can find them, you know, I, I, a lot of lot of effort and work has gone into wow into yeah. them. Um, I'm going to track a lot one of down. Story. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I'd be happy to send you a copy of this one, the first one. Yeah, okay. Just, uh, PM me your address, and I'll because I have a I have some of these left. The, okay. The, the second book, oh, I only have that one and maybe one other one. Yeah. Um, so if I can get them back, you know, there people ask me all the time, so that's probably telling me I ought to get them back on the market. Yeah. I, just, I think so. I have, um, so yeah, I have that and I, I write a lot of articles. You can find them online all the time. I'm putting out new articles. Uh, recent, really a big article I did a lot of research on was to me, what was one of the greatest catch as catch can matches that ever took place was in Boston in 1923 between John Pesek and the Olympic uh, medalist, Nat Pendleton. And it was a hundred percent money on the line, but um, I, I it, it's it's a fascinating bit of history right there, you know, for, for catch us catch probably two of the arguably best world class catch us catch can wrestlers of their day 
decided yep. to go ahead and, and really wrestle it out in a public venue, not in private, but in a public venue, ticket buying uh, venue, and uh, putting up large amounts of money going to the win winner takeoff. The loser wow. didn't even get car fare home. So you, it was 100% the real deal. <laughs> so uh, th that's out there. Uh, Jake Shannon has some of those articles on his website, uh, uh, if scientific wrestling. Yep. I think you can find some of them there. But, uh, you know, I like telling the story. To me, it's a story worth telling. Oh, absolutely. So. All right, Mark. Well, that's it. I, I really appreciate you coming on, and I had a blast talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Cody. Really good. And appreciate what you're doing. You know, and anything I can ever do to help you, you know, lend your hand, give me a holler and uh, sit, shoot me your address and I'll get a book off to you. Appreciate that. Thanks so much. I'll send you that stuff about the uh, town where I grew up. I think you'd find it interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, love, I love history. I'm an old history buff all around. So sounds hey. good. All right. Sounds Have a good, good rest good. of the night. All right. Thanks, Mark. Good night. All right, guys, thanks for supporting the show. I got a list of sponsors here. So first off, we got Harito Bending, harito-bending.com. You're going to use promo code CHEERS for 10% off. And a portion of that sale is going to come back to support the show. So I appreciate that. You know, everybody wants to be on the Harito cert list. I haven't heard a bad thing about the quality of his bolts. I can personally say that they're the same every time some really hard bolts on there you got certs for every style including snapping he's also got wraps and t-shirts on there so definitely hit up haritobending.com and use the promo code cheers next we got jed johnson's nail bending ebook if you want to check this ebook out if you're a beginner message me for the link because if you use this link a portion of that sale is going to come back to support the show we also have the Grippedo Trainer. This is an all-in-one grip training tool. If you use promo code Beyond the Bend, you're going to save 15% off of a sale of $90 or more. We also have Gil, former guest, BarrelStrengthSystems.com. Use promo code Beyond for 10% off. Gil's got a ton of cool stuff on there, including the flask. This is a uh, pinch device. If you can do a body weight pull up on this thing you're going to get on a roster i think that's pretty cool all right lastly we have hard life fightwear that's hardlifefightwear.com or .co.uk if you want some rash guards or something like that for jujitsu they also got a bunch of other cool t-shirts on there you're going to use promo code beyond the bend for 15 percent off also if you want to get on a roster an unofficial roster Hit up at Eat Chalk Get Big on Instagram. If you bent an ADD unbraced or two 60Ds taped together unbraced, you're going to get on an unofficial roster. The other thing is if you snapped a horseshoe, I don't need a video. I'm keeping track of people who have snapped horseshoes just because it's a cool thing to do. If you've also snapped one into three pieces, hit me up. Or if you've snapped one laying down, there's only two people on that list, so get on it. Last thing, a couple new things coming up. I'm going to be putting out a feat of the week. This isn't really a challenge more than just like something cool to do week by week. It's going to be just like some athletic stuff mixed with some bending and snapping. 
So I'm going to be putting that out. And the only way to, to, to participate is just to do it and then tag me in the post and throw it up on Instagram or Facebook. The other thing is every month, I'm going to be doing a monthly challenge. We've had some really good participation lately. I want to keep that going. I have some really think, uh, really cool things planned. So I really appreciate everybody's support and uh, looking forward to another good year. All right, thanks. Thank you.